Good morning, friends. It's good to have you here with, with us today. I'm certain that God will have uh, a word of encouragement for you if you already haven't received that this morning. Um, it seems that his uh, spirit is faithful to always bless us and encourage us um, exactly when we need it. The uh, text that you just heard read is uh, a text that uh, uh, is a parallel text to our text today in Mark chapter 12. If you have a Bible, you might be interested in turning there with us, Mark 12, so you can follow along. And as you, as you make your way there, uh, I'd like to begin by saying that what we're going to look at this morning is a case study, really. Uh, and of course, case studies have great value. They are designed for a better understanding of any principle being taught. If you want to learn something, sometimes a case study is helpful in learning it or at least applying it. It, it seems that the more we study the case, we, we seem to grasp at a deeper level the substance and application of the principle being taught. Hence, case studies. And so we have them, we use them, and they're valuable. Today's text in Mark chapter 12, we're going to see a case study that may help us understand what it means to be in the kingdom of God versus near or almost in the kingdom of God. You remember in verse 34 of Mark 12, Jesus told the scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Well, far from the kingdom of God on the other side of death, death is a long ways away, isn't it? <laughs> Being near the kingdom of God doesn't cut it in my book in terms of our eternal future. I don't want to be just told you're near or you're not far from. I want to know for certain that I'm in the kingdom of God, right? <laughs> and so here we have this great case study that will help us understand that very important issue. Are you just near or not far from the kingdom of God or are you in the kingdom of God? And so this case study is gonna have great value to us uh, when we uh, take a look at it. We've been in Mark 12 now for a few weeks learning some great gospel principles. Uh, and this chapter is chock full of gospel principles. In fact, all of Mark 12 happened on one day during Passover week, and that would be Wednesday. And I'd like to think that there is a running theme throughout Jesus's final teaching here in this chapter and the discussions he was having with religious leaders on this day and the crowd that was watching. If you look at the beginning of the chapter, I'm going to give you a, just a, a brief summary to kind of catch you up to uh, what we're looking at here. The first volley from or between Jesus and the religious leaders that were kind of hounding him all day came from Jesus. And with the parable of the tenant in verses 1 through 12. And in that parable, Jesus clearly communicated that rebellious, sinful people reject God, they reject his prophets, and ultimately they reject his son. That's who Jesus is describing here in the first 12 verses. And in this section, verse 12, in fact, says, the religious leaders believe that Jesus was talking about them, and he was. He was establishing who was the ones that were prideful and independent of God. And so, to return, then the religious leaders sent in three different groups, I call them hitmen, uh, to try and trap Jesus or, or to have him incriminate himself 
so that he would be discredited in the eyes of the people. And so Jesus used these three questions, these three opportunities, to teach on the requirements of God and his gospel. So if you remember in verses 13 through 17, Jesus answered the question about paying taxes. The scribes came to him and said, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And of course they wanted him to say, no, you can't pay taxes to Caesar, we're Jews. And then he would get in trouble with the Romans who were leading the whole show and he would be arrested or put to death or something of the like. And so that's what they wanted, but Jesus didn't come out and answer the way that they wanted. He said something profound. He says, render to Caesars what is Caesars and to God what is God's. And the reason that is so profound is because he says, if you, if you make money, pay taxes. <laughs> if you have a life, you owe it to God. All right, so there's the, Jesus' answer. It was a profound answer. And then they moved on to question number two, found in verses 18 through 27. They asked, a group of men, Sadducees, asked if there was such a thing as eternal life. And they used this question about a woman who was married to uh, 12 different men, and all of them died. And then when they get to heaven, whose wife will she be? And of course, Jesus had to correct their view of eternity. And he did so by saying, God is the God of the living, not a God of the dead. In other words, whether here or in the next life, you will stand before God. You will do business with God. And so that is what is next on the, uh, on the passage here. And then the third question was concerning the greatest commandment. A scribe, an individual scribe, asked Jesus after all this back and forth that I've just mentioned to you, what is the greatest commandment, teacher? What is, what is the most important commandment to God? And in this passage, Jesus says something that is not almost, it is impossible to keep. He says the greatest commandment is to love, your, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And which of us can do that? How many here have loved the Lord your God with your whole being, your whole self, your whole life? None of us. And that was Jesus' point. He's walking them through each aspect of the gospel. We are all sinful, rebellious people uh, opposed to God, God's prophets, and God's word, right? That's the, the first uh, parable of the tenets. And then in terms of paying taxes, he was saying, you owe your whole self to God for all that he's done for you. You owe him yourself. And then you will stand before him one day. He is a God of the living and you will be there with him, facing him on judgment day. And in order to avoid that, guess what? You need to be perfect. And this leaves us all in despair, doesn't it? Every person who thinks of it clearly realizes they cannot, in fact, do this perfection thing that Jesus is requiring. So we're out of luck, even if we're really close, right? You're not far from the kingdom. Oh, you're so close. No, Jesus's point was to bring us to, the, to that place of despair, the threshold of hopelessness. And then in verses 27 through 30, he shares something that is the answer, the solution to the despair that we might face over our inability to achieve God's requirements. This hope that we find in Jesus Christ, and Jesus presented this by asking the scribes, who do you say is the Messiah? Whose son do you say he is? Where did he come from? 
And then their answer was, well, he's the son of David. Yeah, he is. That's, that's what the prophets say. He is a descendant of the great King David, but is there more? And of course, they had no answer for that. And so Jesus answered it for them by taking them back to Psalm 110 in right there in verses, um, where are we here? 35 through 37, he quotes Psalm 110. Why? Because in the Holy Spirit, David was writing, writing Psalm 110 under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He, he called the Messiah his Lord, his God. And so not only was he a descendant, a human descendant of King David, he was the Son of God, the God of the universe. And that is the only answer, the only solution that we have today or any day in their day or ours of hope. This is the only way that we're going to actually be in the kingdom of God is by embracing the Savior from heaven who came as one of us. And this is what chapter 12 is about. It's about Jesus orchestrating the conversation with all these different people so that he could lay out the gospel and all the principles of the gospel. And now here when we get to the end of the chapter, verses 38 through 44, Jesus is going to give us a case study so that we can see it, understand the principles, and embrace it for what it is. And so with every single answer that Jesus gave, he pointed his inquisitors to the gospel and what it means to have an authentic relationship with God. And so he wanted everyone present to understand the prerequisites to be included in the family of God, in the kingdom of God. The players that we see throughout this chapter, you've seen them, you've heard about them, were Jesus, of course, the religious leaders that were opposed to him, the crowds that were joyfully listening to this debate between Jesus and the religious leaders, Jesus' disciples, and now here when we get to verses 38 through 44, a poor widow, the case study of the gospel. All right, so let me read these verses for you, and then I'll do my best to explain them to you and apply them for you today. Starting in verse 38, And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at the feasts, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers, they will receive their greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had and all she had to live on. So Jesus had already identified the religious leaders as proud, independent people, back with the, the parable of the tenants, right? Verses 1 through 12. Uh, and he was having a rolling conversation about the gospel from one subject matter to the next that were presented through their questions. And in the process of this long conversation, took a couple hours at least, Jesus exposed the true character of these religious leaders as being proud and rebellious and independent of God in every way. The religious leaders we're talking about. And so by nature, I want you to see something here. I want you to see how important it is to connect 
who we really are as 21st century individuals to the description that Jesus was making of the scribes, the religious leaders. It is so easy to sit on this side of the situation that we've read about and say, man, those people were thick-headed. I cannot believe they acted this way or thought this way or did these things. When all along, according to the Apostle Paul, these things were written, written for our benefit. They are writ written to reveal the callousness of our hearts. This is why we've come to the passage we have today. The Holy Spirit has brought us here because we're working our way through the book of Mark, he's brought you here to hear this exposition concerning the condition of your heart, not the condition of the hearts of these religious leaders in the first century. Now, admittedly, the condition of the scribes' heart that Jesus has, has revealed to us here is a condition of the pre-Christ heart of the heart of someone who has not yet embraced Jesus, of the heart of someone who rejects, in fact, the good news of Jesus Christ. That is the description that Jesus is using from the scribes. The description of the poor widow is something that is a result of a person who has embraced the gospel. There's the case study. The before and after shots of the gospel being embraced by an individual, maybe you in this room. All right, so I want you to keep that in mind. So we're going to see this case study of contrast as we work our way through this. I want you to see from this case study what we were before Jesus did his work of grace in us and how we are parallel to those scribes and then what we are like after Jesus does his work of grace in us, which is paralleled, paralleled by the poor widow. I want you to see how the gospel, if you truly embrace it, produces fruit in the lives of those who do. So first of all, let's look at this proud independent people, verses 38 through 40, before we know Jesus, all right? This is the first half of the case study. This is what Jesus wants, the Holy Spirit wants you to understand about your pre-Christ condition. And you may be sitting here this morning having never embraced the gospel, having been close to the kingdom but not quite in the kingdom. If that's the case, the description that you're about to see here outlined and detailed is going to be eerily close to what you see when you look in the mirror. All right? I want you to, and, and all of us, in fact, who before we knew Christ, before we embraced the gospel, experienced these kinds of things in our life. Okay, I want you to notice these things. So this was Jesus' final public teaching, what we have here in chapter 12. In these verses, Jesus taught of the dangers of the self-righteous, self-promoting false teachers, most of whom were proud and independent people, independent of God. In our sin nature, we're a lot like these scribes, as I've said. This condemnation that we read from Jesus' lips is for anyone, not just first century religious leaders, but for anyone who hold a corrupt view of scripture, a corrupt view of Christ, or a corrupt view of the gospel. The public denunciation of the teachers of the law, I think, was probably shocking to everyone who heard it on this Wednesday, uh, because it was leveled against the scribes who were considered to be the spiritually elite of the group. Uh, they, they, they were, the scribes were revered keepers of God's law and guardians of the truth. They were considered to be the cream of the religious crop, in other words. 
And Jesus is here demolishing them publicly. In fact, most Jews believe that the scribes were direct recipients of the law of Moses. The Mishnah declares, in fact, the following. It is more culpable to transgress the words of a scribe than the words of the Torah. So it was a bigger sin <laughs> to dismiss the words of a human scribe than the word of God in the Mishnah. So this is, this is a serious accusation that Jesus is leveling against these scribes. They were held up in high honor by all people, but they were, it seems, if Jesus' description is accurate, hypocritical, corrupt, prideful, and independent. And let me read for you a couple of verses from Matthew 23 that were read earlier. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much of a child as hell as yourselves. Talk about a slap in the religious face. That is it. You serpents, Jesus continued in verse 33 of Matthew 23, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? How's that for a confirmation of your ministry? Shocking, isn't it? Well, these, these prideful, independent people, Jesus begins to lay out the problem. And the first is this, they are characterized by a need for attention. Prideful, independent people, whether it's a first century religious leader or a person sitting in the pew this morning, prideful, independent people are characterized by a need for attention. Where does this come from? This need for attention comes from sin, of course, but more, more detailed description would be the fear of man. The underlying motivation in behavior of prideful, independent people is a concern about what other people think of them. They're, they're, they're actually extremely dependent people, even though they claim to be independent. They're dependent on our opinions. <laughs> Their opinion on our view of them, our willingness to say so, how great they are. They're actually very dependent on the opinions of others. And, ever, and whenever we stop stroking the ego of these people, they become desperate and meditate on ways to ramp up public perception and personal praise. How can I get people to say good things about me? So they, they have this need for attention. And, and Jesus says about these guys in uh, this chapter or in this, this passage, they have a need to impress. They have a need to impress. Proud, independent people have to have this impression on those around them. And here we see the scribes working hard at impressing people. What do you see as the first thing in this passage that, the, that scribes are trying to do to impress people? Fancy dress, right? They, they had these really nice long robes on that were worn intentionally to impress the people looking at them. They walked around in these long flowing robes, hoping that people would notice. These robes were full-length linen garments with ornate fringes and tassels, some even with bells, so they could, you could hear them coming if you didn't see them. These garments were specifically designed to impress the crowd and hopefully convince all who were watching that these are real pious folks here. Look how nice they look. Listen to what Jesus says about it. Matthew 23, 5. 
They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. The longer the fringe, the longer the tassel, the more impressive they were, evidently. And so they, they dressed to impress people. Next, it seems that they had false spirituality identified by fancy prayers. Look at verse 40. Who devour widows' houses for a pretense and for a pretense make long prayers. Once when D.L. Moody was preaching in Chicago, uh, he had a, a guest speaker or, or a, a, a guest pastor that was a local pastor in Chicago come up and say a few words and pray for the meeting that night. And this pastor uh, was a well-known, you know, educated man in the, in the city of Chicago. And when D.L. Moody asked him to pray, he felt pretty honored by this to pray for uh, an event at D.L. Moody's outreach event. And so he gets up and he was waxing eloquent in this prayer on and on and on it went. And then D.L. Moody got tired of it and he walks up beside him and taps him on the shoulder and says, well, pastor so-and-so finishes his prayer, let's move on to the preaching. <laughs> How would you like to be that pastor? This is kind of what was going on here. These, these scribes would intentionally craft long and beautiful prayers to impress the crowd. Their, their condemnation uh, came because of the long, eloquent prayers were intended to impress everybody but God. They had this beautiful cadence to their prayers, smooth vocabulary, but in fact, they were demonstrating a false spirituality and hollow prayer life. Jesus said this in Matthew 6, 5, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So the long prayers, as the commentators say, you'll enjoy this, the long prayers most likely that were being made were made on behalf of the widows who paid them, who had to pay them to pray for them. You wanted to get a religious person to pray for you? Line up, take a ticket, and then pay me five bucks. How would that go? <laughs> That's what was happening here. And what was Jesus' response to this practice? Well, it says they will receive the greater condemnation. Greater than who? Greater than those who don't do that, even if they end up in the same place. And then besides these, this fine dress and fancy prayers, it seems that verse 41 indicates these type of folks also want to make a show of their giving. In verse 41, many rich people put in large sums. And who were the rich people of the day when Jesus said this? Who were the ones showing up? It was the religious leaders who were the rich ones. They were the ones lining their pockets with the pittance from the widows in town. So in the temple square, temple courtyard, there were 13 giving boxes, which all Jews had access to, and each giving box had a different purpose, but all were supposed to be given to. Uh, and they were in the sight of everybody. 
So if you were in the temple courtyard, you could see people who were giving, which is why Jesus could point out this poor widow. It was there for everybody to see. Well, it was also easy to see the scribes placing in all their money. <clears throat> I'm about ready to give here, folks. Mm. Match that if you can. Kind of was what was happening here. Well, we've decided not to have public giving at Sun Valley Church anymore. It's all back there in the corner in the box. But uh, anyway, this is a, a shocking piece of information here. So the rich here, including these religious leaders, would, would make a big show of their giving, making sure everyone knew that they were giving and how much they were giving. And, uh, and not only were, there, were they giving out of their ill-gotten abundance, their giving was done with ungodly motives. It was done for show. It wasn't because of their love for God or their gratitude for his goodness. No, they, they gave to be recognized. That was it. It was no hardship on them to drop a lot of money into the box because rich people put in large sums, it says in verse 41. Now, if you have, if you have been transformed by the grace of the gospel, by the Holy Spirit's conversion then your giving, if it begins that way, at least over time, turns more positive. If, if you, in fact, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, it will affect how you think about giving. It will affect how you give. When you begin to transition or transform into a Christ-like individual, your giving will be not so much like we've just seen here in these verses. Not for show. Loving God with all your heart results in a heart of overflowing gratitude for all that God has done for us through Jesus Christ. A, a gospel-affected heart is naturally a generous heart. It's a heart that gives joyfully and sacrificially also. So these independent prideful people need to impress. Secondly, they crave public acknowledgement. Did you notice that? These scribes would walk around the city and temple courts in their expensive and ostentatious clothing, fishing for compliments. What'd you think of my sermon last week? It, yeah, really, well, well, what'd you think of the way I led prayer? Or on and on this fishing would go. They, they were addicted to public praise. And if you didn't give it, they would fish for it. It's similar to the scene in the comedy, What About Bob? After Bob had addressed Dr. Marvin by his first name, Leo, Dr. Marvin quickly corrected it himself, said, you need to call me Dr. Marvin, right? It's something we might laugh at in a, in a comedy, but when someone demands that you address them by a degree or honor that they've earned, you have to wonder about the condition of their heart, right? I demand that you address me as the most holy, and fill in the blank. The scribes would walk around in public places looking for compliments because of their clothing. Everyone knew exactly who they were. If a scribe walked by and you didn't say something flattering about them or, or greet them with a submissive word or an honoring title, 
It was a serious offense. They wanted to hear you say, oh, great teacher. Oh, great teacher. You've got to be holy. Look at how long that tassel is. Right? And then, of course, they were desperate to be honored, Jesus said. They wanted everyone to acknowledge their greatness by always giving them the best seats in the house. They had the box seats at every event, including the synagogue, and they truly believed they deserved them. This is the, this, this is the case with prideful, independent people. They, they, they believe their own chat of how great they are. It isn't unusual for proud independent people to be easily offended because they aren't honored as they think they should be. We've heard the stories. They want credit for any idea they had and, or something they did. They want to be mentioned whenever names are being read. They're desperate for public acknowledgement to, because of their contributions. And as silly as it sounds, there have been so many stories of people in churches who have been deeply offended because they didn't have a plaque made in their honor and put on a pew or made it in their honor and put on a wall someplace in the church property. Well, prideful, independent people are, first of all, characterized by a need for attention. And then secondly, it seems Jesus is saying they also take advantage of vulnerable people. They need attention. You want, you want to know if, if, again, this is a case study. You want to know where you, where you find yourself? Do any of the descriptions that Jesus made of the Pharisees fit you? They're characterized by a need of attention and secondly, take advantage of vulnerable people. And Jesus emphasized this part, which led him to the, the observation of the poor widow. The, the scribes, as I alluded to earlier, would demand large fees to pray for the widows. And not just to pray for them, but to oversee the affairs of widows, which they couldn't do for themselves. Oh, I'll take care of that for a fee. They would expect widows to pay them for prayers, for blessings. They abused widows' hospitalities, defrauded their estates, mismanaged their property, and exchanged their humble residences as pledges on debts that were inflicted by the scribes themselves. I'll pray for you, but since you can't afford to pay for my prayer, I'll just take your, your, take your house and you can pay me through rent. So proud independent people take advantage of vulnerable people in order to feel superior to them. They, they take advantage in many different ways. They wield their authority to force submission. They wield their influence, whether that be financial or social, to give favors to those who will stroke their ego. The only way to stay on their good side is if you bow. And if you bow, then we'll let you hang around. So the case study on that side is pretty horrendous. That's the pre-Christ human nature. Now, at this point, the case study takes a significant turn. And we know that this case study takes a turn because Jesus himself physically turns and begins to observe the givers in the temple court. And it says in verse 41, and then he sat down opposite the treasury and watched people. Watch them put money into the offering boxes. So th this is the contrast. Th this is 
what we ought to be seeing developing more and more in our Christian life because of the gospel, because of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. We should be seeing less and less of scribal activity and more and more of poor widow activity. Here's what I want you to see. Humble, dependent people who have embraced the complete Christ are seen doing these things. Now, let me back up a second again just to make sure you're seeing the case study. Jesus has just laid out the gospel for us in Mark 12 by answering questions that were posed to him by his opponents. In the parable of the tenants, we have all rejected God. That is in our nature. We, we all are pridefully independent of God. Don't want anybody telling us what to do. That's how we begin life. Mine, this is me, stay away, mind your own business, right? But in fact, we owe him everything, which is what the paying taxes uh, story is all about. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If you are alive, you owe your life to God because he gave that to you. And then, of course, being fully alive, we will face God one day in the next life. And to avoid eternal damnation, we must love God perfectly. But we can't. Hence, the presentation of Jesus Christ, the complete Christ, fully God, fully man. The only answer to our problem, our chaos, the solution, in fact, to our chaos. We need a complete Savior. This is why Jesus spoke to them in, in uh, verse 36 from Psalm 110. The Messiah, the, the one who would come into the world to save sinners, was not only the descendant of David, but he is in fact God from heaven, the Lord of David. And so immediately following this interchange with the scribes and the people, Jesus turned his attention in the second half of our case study to this poor widow giving at the money box. And look at this contrast, friends. Identify yourself here. We, we don't know if this poor widow knew Jesus. We don't know if she embraced him as her Savior and Lord. But listen, Jesus used her sacrificial giving to complete the case study and show how the gospel produces fruit in the lives of people who have embraced it. This is why Jesus pointed to her. To show this is what happens if you embrace the gospel, if you embrace the Lord of the gospel, if you embrace me as Savior. Despite circumstances, look how this happens in this poor widow's example, her side of the case study. Despite circumstances, you will think and act in certain ways. Let's think about the circumstances of this poor widow. She was mistreated, wasn't she? Yeah. <laughs> By the very religious leaders who were supposed to encourage her, she was mistreated. The widow was poor, hence poor widow. And she was poor because of religious corruption. That's most likely the reason she was poor. And the poor widow was a social outcast, and her circumstances were dire. So, it seems here that Jesus could be saying that negative circumstances aren't the things that keep people outside the kingdom of God. Instead, we say things like, oh, if I could just get them to church, or if I could just get them a gospel track, or if I, all good things. But you know what? God saves people on his own timetable. He brings people to Christ in unique ways. It seems that God is quick 
to grant grace and mercy to struggling, needy, and downcast people. And when he does, friends, when he does grant grace and mercy to people, what you're going to see is humility, dependence, and joy begin to develop. And that's, that's the part of the case study I want you also to examine this morning. I think it's easy to identify the negative aspects of the case study in our lives, right? We can look in the mirror and say, oh yeah, that's me. Wow, that's me too. Yikes. But then when we see this part, can we see the work of the gospel, the work of grace also in our lives? If the Holy Spirit is present, if you've embraced the gospel, in fact, you will see these things in your life. Because the gospel always has an effect. Always. So despite circumstances, this poor widow showed the fruit of her relationship with God. How so? Well, she was there. Right? This poor widow was faithful. She illustrates what faithfulness looks like in depressing circumstances. Jesus used her as an example to demonstrate the powerful effect that the gospel actually has on people. She kept on going to the synagogue. She was in attendance. She had every excuse not to be there. You know, we, we are quick to, you know, check out because it's drizzling or it's sunny. It's amazing how this happens. Uh, because it's drizzling, we probably should just kind of cuddle up by the fire, you know, and enjoy the morning together in front of the fire. If it's sunny, hey, what a great day to go out. You know, when is it a good day to go to church? I haven't figured it out yet. This lady had every reason not to be at the synagogue. And yet she was there. In spite of her circumstances. And being there, she would have been connecting with other believers. Right? Which is what the gospel does to people. When they, when they come to Christ, when they embrace the gospel, all of a sudden, relationships and fellowship with other people who have embraced the gospel seems attractive. Have you noticed that, Christian friend? You enjoy a good conversation with a fellow believer? Next, we see that she kept being obedient. She was giving. If there was ever anybody that would have gotten a pass on this day in the courtyard, it would have been her. This is the only money she had. <laughs> a penny. In fact, you'd feel bad that she put it in, wouldn't you? And yet, she gave. She kept on loving God with all her heart, all her soul, all her mind, all her strength. The last verse says, everything she had. It's a picture of what the gospel does to people. It's a picture of what, what the gospel does to those who used to be hard-hearted, prideful, independent people, and how God uses the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and the people of God to see this shift, this transformation towards humble, dependent, joyful people. So instead of being pridefully independent of God, 
People who have embraced Jesus in his gospel are humble, dependent people who produce fruit that glorifies God. There's the case study. It's easier to understand biblical gospel principles by looking at this case study, isn't it? He has spent the entire chapter talking about different elements of the gospel, but here in this final case study we go, oh, now I get it. Am I close or am I in the kingdom of God? Friends, there is nothing more important to examine in your life. Don't miss heaven by 18 inches. Don't live all of your life knowing everything about the gospel, knowing everything about God, and when you get there, you're not included because your heart was never engaged. Missing heaven by 18 inches. Nav all the head knowledge, but no heart engagement. This poor scribe, you're not far from the kingdom of God. I personally believe he came to Christ. But what a statement. You'd better hear that statement when you're alive. Right? You're not far from the kingdom of God. If you hear that when your life has ended, oh my goodness. Friends, this is the kind of person, this, this person who has embraced Jesus Christ, who believes his gospel, the kind of person who's being transformed into the likeness of Jesus himself, this is the kind of person that pleases God. This is the kind of person that we want to nurture at Sun Valley Church. Our desire here at, at this church is to cultivate humble, dependent people who bear fruit in their lives because of a genuine embrace of Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to serve you the Lord's Supper. And as always, we encourage you to examine yourself at least once a month when we serve you the Lord's Supper to see where your heart is in relation to God, in relation to your own embrace of his gospel. As you do this morning, I want to ask you to remember this case study. Are you seeing evidence of a prideful, independent heart or a person who's being transformed into Christ-like humble and dependency? What does the fruit of your life say about where your heart is? And so as you come to the table this morning, which will serve you up front, which has been our practice of late, we're going we're gonna to offer all who come uh, the elements. And of course, the elements are a picture of the work of Christ, right? The, the broken bread pictures his broken body, which is a requirement for the forgiveness of your sin. His spilt blood is a picture of his perfection, his cleansing of all your past, present, and future sins. And so I want you to think through these things. Have you embraced Jesus, the only solution to the chaos of sin in your life? I, I pray that that's the case. In fact, if you haven't done that, then this next portion of our service is not for you. This portion of our service is reserved for those who have embraced Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and who desire to follow him. It doesn't mean you're excellent at it. 
It doesn't mean you've been successful at it lately. It just means that is your heart's desire. You've embraced the Savior and you're running towards him. This is intended to be an encouragement to those type of people. So I pray that, that you, would, you would examine yourself this morning as you come and that you will do business with God as you stand before him here in a moment. I'm going to uh, read the words of institution from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And after I'm done praying, I'm asking and inviting you to come forward and join us up front. Elders, if you would join me as I read these words of institution from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. For I received from the Lord Jesus, Paul said, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's thank God for this. Lord, we thank you that, first of all, that you took it upon yourself to come to this planet as one of us. You, being the son of the great King David, you, being the God of heaven, took on flesh that you might live a perfect life and die a death that you didn't deserve. We, we humbly come to you now and thank you and embrace you and embrace your gospel. We know that without this, there is no chance of us living out the gospel principles that we've heard this morning and as seen in the case study of the poor widow. I ask that you would have mercy on each person present, that you would restore their soul, that you would, in fact, give them new life. And for those of us who have embraced you, that you would strengthen us so that we might walk in faithfulness. Lord, bless us now as, as we come by faith to receive these things from your hand. And we pray this in your name. Amen.